Welcome to the Spaceport America podcast with me, Alice Carruth. I'm the Public Relations Coordinator at the New Mexico Spaceport Authority, and we're the state agency that runs Spaceport America. Joining me on this episode is Dr. Bill Gutman, who is the Director of Operations, Aerospace Operations at Spaceport America. And he's going to talk to us about the history of Spaceport America, because you've been involved in Spaceport America for some time now, Bill. Can you take us back to the beginning? When did you first get involved with the idea of a commercial spaceport in New Mexico? So my, my involvement with the project actually goes back to the mid-1990s. Uh, it was already had some momentum even before that, but my involvement goes back to about that time when we were getting serious about uh, pursuing a license with the Federal Aviation Administration and moving along with the environmental requirements to support the license. But there were actually a group of people in, in the early 90s who had this concept of a spaceport. Many of them were, had been associated with White Sands Missile Range or the NASA uh, WISTF site here, the White Sands Test Facility. And so they, they saw the potential with the low population density and so on as an economic driver uh, in commercial space. So one of the earliest things that they explored was something, it was a NASA program called COMET, which stood for Commercial Experiment Transporter. And this was an idea before the, we were doing a lot of work with the space station of being able to transport experiments in things like space-based manufacturing. And so they envisioned a project that would involve many, many re-entries. And so we were actually looking at what at an area which is now where the spaceport is located as a pop, possible re-entry target for those things. So that's where it got started. And then not long after that, uh, we were fortunate, the state was fortunate in, able, in getting some money set aside to do some feasibility studies uh, that, were, that came through NASA and the Air Force to look at the feasibility and to look at what the requirements might be for a commercial spaceport. So with those underpinnings, then the state, the, uh, the Office for uh, Space Commercialization within the Economic Development Department was established. And their job was to go out there and look for, for targets of opportunity, companies and projects that might be looking for a home and for which our spaceport that was still at that point just a concept might be suitable. And so one of the earliest of those was actually a program from NASA. Um, well, it was, it was uh, related to NASA, but NASA had, had this program that was called X-33. And it was a program of the type that in the business is referred to as an advanced uh, concept technology demonstrator. And what they wanted to do was demonstrate the technologies that would be necessary for a single-staged orbit vehicle. Single-staged orbit is a, a very, very difficult thing to achieve. But what it means is, unlike all the launches that we do today, where a booster falls off along the way, and now SpaceX, for example, they land those boosters and reuse them, but they still separate. So this idea was that you would have a vehicle that the entire thing went to orbit. And it's a very, very difficult technological challenge because the vehicle has to be extremely lightweight for its size. But in any case, NASA had this program called X-33, and it turns out Lockheed Martin won the project, the contract, to do that work, and they announced that they were going to develop a commercial derivative of that, which would be a true single-staged orbit vehicle. So the X-33 wasn't required to go to orbit. It was only required to demonstrate the, the technologies, the thermal protection, the lightweight structures, and all the things that in the next version would be able to go to orbit. And Lockheed then was their partner in this, and so they released an RF, uh, actually it was called a request for, uh, for um, qualifications. Uh, we, we usually think of something called an RFP, a request for proposals, but this was a request for qualifications. And they put that out to the world 
for places to base this project. And New Mexico was one of, I think, if I remember correctly, I think there were 17 sites proposed in 11 different U.S. states. And um, so we actually initially proposed two sites. And uh, much to, uh, to our pleasure, we actually were selected as the winner for that at a location which is very close to the spaceport today. Now, unfortunately, that was never announced publicly, and the reason for that is that the program was was canceled before they ever actually built the vehicle or even built the X-33 vehicle. The reason for that had to do more with the space station than anything else because NASA was in the full development phase of the, of the space station at that time. And unfortunately, the space station, like many large aerospace programs, was eating up more money than anybody had anticipated. So they were trying to, to take programs that they, seen, that they saw from their mission perspective as a little less essential and pull the money back out of them. And unfortunately, the X-33 was one of those. And without the X-33 to reduce risks for Lockheed, they chose not to go on with the, with the uh, VentureStar project. But the VentureStar was this sort of wedge-shaped lifting body vehicle. And uh, again, with hydrogen and oxygen engines, the vehicle, when it's sitting there ready to fly, it has to have 90% of the total weight has to be the, the propellants. It has to be the hydrogen and the oxygen. And that is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. So that means the vehicle itself and the payloads can only weigh 10% of the total amount. And it's even a little worse than that because if you need any fuel to come back with, for example, you, if you go to orbit, you're at some point going to need to burn your engines to slow you down enough that you come back. Well, that, that fuel counts against the 10%, not against the 90%, because it wasn't involved in getting you up there. So it's, it's very, very difficult, and no one has yet achieved it. Some people would say that we may never achieve it, but the, but the reality is that program was was going to try, and you know as the program progressed, they got a little bit less ambitious with the goals. At one point, it probably wasn't maybe quite a true orbital vehicle. It would have been a once-around vehicle, so it would have come around, not quite achieved orbital velocity, but landed back at the original launch site an hour, an hour and a half later. So, but those were the kinds of things that were being pursued. Well, now with that program having been lost, we or uh, having gone away, I should say, we didn't really lose it. Then we started to look into other options for the spaceport. And at that, about the same time, the X Prize was, had been announced. And so we and many other people thought that uh, we would see space tourism blossom as a result of that, and, and potentially other space programs, uh, companies with vehicles and so on. And so the state did a lot of soul searching and the people who were in charge of the program in Santa Fe made the decision that we should refocus on these entrepreneurial uh, startup companies. And that's kind of how we build our relationship with Virgin Galactic, because as probably many people know, the technology that Virgin Galactic flies today to, to carry tourists to space is a direct descendant of the technology that was used to win the XPRIZE Cup in 2004. So that was Spaceship One and White Knight. Now we're flying Spaceship Two and White Knight Two. But other than size, they, there's a great similarity in the way they look and in the way they operate. So that was the focus at the time. And then we saw some other really neat opportunities emerging uh, at the same time. Uh, companies such as Up Aerospace, which was the first company to launch to space from our spaceport, the first company to launch anything, and the first company to reach space from Spaceport America. So they had a, an ambitious program 
for a suborbital research rocket, and they call that rocket the Space Loft. And so uh, we worked with them to develop the launch facilities that they needed. And in fact, they still launched to space. Um, so Virgin has been to space twice from Spaceport America. Up, I believe, has been there, I think it's 12 times, if I'm not mistaken, um, in their launches. And so they have a, it's a relatively small rocket, but it's capable of taking roughly 50 pounds above the Kármán line, 100 kilometers or 62 miles above the surface. And when they do that, they, they achieve uh, a couple of minutes of high-quality microgravity, and uh, they can do all sorts of experiments. So they've, they, they've done many, many experiments for NASA, including testing a reentry body that NASA is developing for bringing things back from the space station on demand. Uh, they tested a, an aerobraking system that can be used, will, almost certainly will be used on future Mars missions because what it is is essentially a heat shield and a braking system in one device, and it's made of carbon fiber. So the good thing about that is that it can be deployed. So, for example, the system that was flown here in the test mode fits within the 10.5-inch diameter of the upper aerospace rocket, but when deployed in reentering, it's more like 4 feet in diameter. So if you scale that up to something that starts off at, say, 6 feet in diameter, you can imagine you could get quite a large... Uh, air brake. And as you, we know, if, those of us that follow these things closely, landing on Mars is a very, very tricky thing. And NASA seems to have figured out a good way to do it. But with companies like uh, like SpaceX telling us that, you know, that Mars is in the future of humanity, uh, we need to develop some additional technology because, you know, the, the methods that, that NASA is using, the skyhook approach that they're using, may not be scalable to to a vehicle that has a dozen people on board or something. So we need ways of uh, slowing down and uh, controlling the heating of these vehicles as they land on Mars with, with the future astronauts that are going to go there to explore and maybe live someday. So going back to you getting involved back in the 1990s, Bill, uh, I know that you were working then at that point at NMSU. Can you tell us a little bit about how NMSU was involved and... How sure. your role then ended up coming to Spaceport America full time? Yeah, so sure. That, so basically, at the time, I, I was I'd worked for the physical science lab at NMSU for about twenty years, and uh, so the physical science lab, as the name implies, we had a bunch of physicists and engineers and chemists and various uh, scientific disciplines. And when the state, when the space program in the state of New Mexico was the office for space commercialization, it was typically just two or maybe two and a half people. And so they really didn't have a budget that would support uh, hiring someone with, with more knowledge and expertise in doing the kinds of scientific studies necessary to attract customers. So what they chose to do was come to the physical science lab through a, a contracting mechanism um, that, that makes it fairly easy for one state agency to, to contract with another, NMSU, of course, being a state entity. So that mechanism was uh, was very useful. And so they would come to, to PSL. And another good thing about it is that PSL was a pretty good-sized organization in those days. It had probably 400 employees. So it wasn't difficult for us to gear up and gear down in, in response to the demand requirements from the Office for Space Commercialization. So, for example, we were deeply involved in writing the proposal for the VentureStar project that I mentioned. And during that time, we had maybe four or five people working pretty much full time on the project. 
And as soon as that was done, then we went back down to a more typical support level, which was maybe more like half a person. And so in, in those days, frequently when, when it was a fraction of a person, then I often was the one that did the work if that, if that was appropriate for what needed to be done. And when we geared up to for larger projects, we would bring in people as required. So we wrote that venture star proposal and there were, and don't get me wrong, PSL was not solely responsible for it. Uh, the state, the executive director at the time was retired Air Force Brigadier General Hanson Scott. And he, he assembled a very, very good team. And there was lots of uh, volunteer work and so on. The NASA WISTF group helped us. They allowed their contractor to help us. There were some retirees that, that helped. And we had a team probably that in total consisted of about 20 people, I would estimate. Not all of them were working full-time at all times, but that, that number of people roughly was involved. So we did, we did scientific studies, we did site surveys. Um, we, I think one of the key elements that we did that other states didn't do was we recognized that, um, that our elevation could potentially be of very great importance for this vehicle. Um, so, you know, you, we, we often say, well, the first mile's free. It turns out it's, it's really a lot better than that because, you know, there, there are basically three things that have to happen. You have to get the height, so you're fighting against gravity to do that. You have to get the speed uh, to, to do that. Uh, and, and so that, by starting a little bit higher, and then uh, maybe the most important one is the fact that the atmosphere is pushing back, you know, so you have atmospheric drag. So with data that we were able to get from Lockheed Martin, we were able to show that, uh, and we thought our primary rival in this, in this effort would be Florida, the, the Space Florida, and we were able to show that in spite of the fact that we're farther north and, and being closer to the equator is generally considered good too, but by being at a much higher elevation than Florida, they're at sea level, and we're at the, the spaceport proposes 4,600 feet above sea level. So we were able to show that, that that vehicle would be able to take a few thousand pounds more to orbit on each launch. It was designed to carry about 50,000 pounds. And if you think about that, uh, say four or 5,000 additional pounds, well, maybe that's another experiment or another satellite. Or alternatively, maybe you can actually throttle back the engines a little bit and, uh, and maybe get them to last a lot longer by virtue of not running them quite so hard. Or, and you're also going to be saving fuel if you do that. So all of those factors played in. So, so we did that. So that was one of the roles of, of the physical science lab. And then a few years later, uh, we were involved in the proposal to host the XPRIZE Cup. So after the XPRIZE had been won, the foundation had this idea that there should be a yearly competition of space tourism providers, and they needed a place to do that. So again, uh, New Mexico was one of, I think, four uh, that submitted proposals that time, and we came out on top. And in fact, the XPRIZE Cup, as it was originally envisioned, was never held because we never really quite had the um, this diversity in companies offering that service that, that was expected. Uh, but at this, but we, what we did do is host, I think, let me think, it was either three or four, uh, they were called Countdown to the XPRIZE Cup. And two of them were held at the Las Cruces Airport, and one was held at Holloman Air Force Base in conjunction with the Holloman Open House. And those were generally seen as, as quite successful. Uh, they were open to the public, and we had all sorts of exhibits and flight demonstrations and things, and it was really quite uh, quite a fun project. 
So we wrote the proposal. We put that proposal together for that, just like we did for the VentureStar proposal at Physical Science Lab. And, uh, and then we, were, we played a big role in hosting that event as well. And then moving on a little bit later, uh, we needed a launch site for, uh, for Up Aerospace. And so uh, at that particular time, this was happening in, in the year 2006, and the construction business was just booming like crazy. It, it was very difficult to get a construction company that was interested in taking on a project as small as that project was. It was a lot of it was doing some earth moving, it was some building some roads, pouring some concrete. So it's what I think some people refer to as horizontal construction. But it was difficult to get companies that were interested in it because there was so much uh, opportunity out there at the time. And so uh, NMSU was able to take that on and accomplish that in time for Up Aerospace to fly their mission in September of that year. So again, NMSU played a huge role in this. And, you know, and I think uh, the, the spaceport owes an eternal debt to, to NMSU for having been there when they were needed to, to do this work. And I just feel privileged that I was part of that, so. So you've been involved in this whole project for some time now, over several decades, but you then retired from NMSU and PSL and somehow ended up working for the New Mexico Spaceport Authority. Can you tell me a little bit about how you ended up transitioning over to our staff? Yeah, so surely, uh, so what happened is that I, I did retire from, uh, from my position at NMSU at the physical science lab. And, and I still worked for them part time as, as is permitted under the rules, uh, doing some of the things that I had been doing. But um, it, it was a tough time for NMSU because there had been a transition in presidents and there were some things that were going on. And so uh, the business prospects and also we were coming up with the, uh, the, the 2008 recession was affecting business and things. So I had I'd retired from there and I was working then back as I say, for NMSU Physical Science Lab, mainly on the unmanned airplane program on a part-time basis. And that continued for a couple of years. And then one day I get a call from uh, the, by this time the Spaceport Authority had been created and the executive director was Steve Landine. And I got a call uh, from the chairman of the board and she had asked me if, uh, if I was interested in, in coming to work full-time for the Spaceport. And so, you know, I had thought about that. It, it, it's certainly been a labor of love for, for years before that uh, to help the spaceport get moving. And one of the things that I used to do is uh, I used a lot of my accumulated leave time to support some elements of the spaceport at no cost because I could take a day off that was paid for with annual leave and accomplish spaceport things. So I used to go to meetings and things that way around the state. And so, you know, I, I feel very strongly about the the project and want to see it succeed. So that, that's how I came to, to be an employee of the Spaceport. So that happened in 2009. So last month I started my 13th year as an employee. I never imagined that I'd be here at that at that time, at that length of time, I should say. I, I imagined that I'd be here maybe five or maybe six years tops, and then I would go into real retirement. But, you know, as long as interesting things are happening and I have something that I can contribute, then I'm, I'm happy being here. We are very happy to have you here. I do re often refer to you as Mr. Spaceport America, as you know everything. And if what you don't know, there's not worth knowing. So out of all your 15 years of working with the New Mexico Spaceport Authority and at Spaceport America, what, what's been the most exciting thing that you've been involved in? And, and what's your favorite memory of working with the Spaceport? 
Well, I, th I think my favorite memory probably happened actually when I was still with NMSU PSL, but that was when the very first launch took place, went up aerospace, uh, when the button was pushed and that rocket took off because, you know, we had worked very, very hard to get that to happen. I worked probably 80-hour weeks for uh, at least two months leading up to that. There were so many things to be done and such a small staff to accomplish them. And unfortunately, that first launch failed. It did not reach the desired altitude. But one of the things that, you know, I, I've observed in my career is you can tell a lot about the, the character of people, and sometimes more when things don't go quite right than when they do. And I saw the, the principals in that company respond to that situation with, they were tremendously disappointed. But at the same time, they responded with grace and dignity. And, you know, that helped me understand that, that you know, this is the, the way to be. And so then a few months later, they were able to, we convened a, um, an investigation. And a few months later, the, the root causes had been identified and been corrected. And then they had a successful launch. So that, and I think maybe almost to an extent, that second launch that was successful maybe was even more so than the first, because having seen the adversity that they had gone through and, and to triumph was, was really neat. And then, of course, uh, probably the next biggest one was happened just this last July when, when uh, Sir Richard Branson got his opportunity to go to space. And, you know, <clears throat> that's something that we've been uh, waiting for for up on the order of 10 years. Um, and it finally happened, and it was a fantastic thing to see, so. We're obviously often put together with Virgin Galactic. doesn't help having me with as a Spaceport America spokesperson with an English accent, but what's one of the things you'd like people to understand about New Mexico and our aerospace history and how we are positioned, not only to support the likes of Virgin Galactic, but other companies coming through? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, question. <clears throat> People don't realize, but, you know, New Mexico really is the birthplace of, of the U.S. space program, really space exploration overall, because after World War II, those captured German V-2 rockets that had been built as a weapon of war were brought to New Mexico, and they were tested here. And one, one of those launches... I can just imagine how it went. You know, there's no record of this happening, but I can just imagine those scientists and engineers saying, hmm, wouldn't it be neat if we put a camera on this thing the next time we fly it? And they did. And that video, to me, is the first example of space exploration that happened anywhere in the world. So, you know, that's, uh, that's an incredible uh, thing to think that happened in New Mexico. But, you know, New Mexicans are used to, to really interesting things. You know, we host the National Labs. Uh, we host White Sands Missile Range, and so New Mexicans are, I think, almost by nature curious people that, that relish these kinds of things happening in their backyard, and I, th I think that's uh, one of the key elements in, in the success of the spaceport here, and, you know, they continue to show that interest, uh, and, and I th just think that is just a, a wonderful thing that's happening here, so. So what can you tell us about what's going to happen in the future? You've been involved in aerospace for such a long time now, and you've seen it shape over the next few years. Realistically, where can we see this developing and where can we see New Mexico featuring in this development of the new commercial space age? So, you know, as we as we move forward, uh, we, we have not been able to launch to orbit, and that's not because of any shortcomings on our part. It's because of our inland location. Uh, believe me, companies would like to launch to orbit here because taking advantage of that elevation would really help many of them with their projects. Um, 
But I think, uh, so we're going to remain a suborbital spaceport, at least until uh, any of several approaches to, uh, to getting to orbit from an inland location is cracked. Uh, Single-staged orbit is one, recoverable boosters is another, space planes is yet another. And, and one of those, or maybe all of them, are going to come to fruition probably before we know it. But in the meantime, there is a tremendous market for suborbital testing. And uh, because, you know, taking something to orbit, I, I'm not sure how much it costs with SpaceX. They've lowered costs considerably by being able to reuse their boosters. But in the space shuttle days, and that was in 2011 dollars, the first, the last space shuttle flight took place in 2011. And if I remember correctly, it was estimated that it cost about $20,000 to put one pound in orbit. So if you take a 100-pound astronaut, and there aren't too many 100-pound astronauts. I think most of them are more like 150 pounds. But you know, just multiply those numbers together, and you see it's a very, very expensive thing. So now the, the space, the suborbital missions, um, let's just do a little quick arithmetic. You know, Virgin will someday be, in the not-too-distant future, will be putting as many as six astronauts on their, on their vehicle. And um, and let's say those astronauts weigh uh, uh, 150 pounds. They're going to charge them. The current price, I think, is is two four hundred fifty thousand dollars. So anyway, they will take in uh, uh, what four hundred fifty times six. Um, so twenty four. I guess twenty seven. Um, two two point seven million dollars. I think I did the arithmetic correctly. Okay, so that's a that is so much less than that price to launch even a SpaceX rocket to orbit. I think the SpaceX cost is in the range of 50 to $60 million. So when you need to do some testing, and if it doesn't really have to be in orbit, which much of it does not, then it is so much uh, less costly to do that. And so that's one thing. Space tourism is, is just beginning to take off. And, you know, like anything like that, the we expect that the price per for a ticket is going to come down. You know, Virgin is currently charging four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But you know, as they work out the uh, economies of scale and things, which they will, uh, they'll be able to lower that cost, and eventually it's going to come into the reach of a large number of people. And I think that's enough to keep flights going on for a long time. And remember, for, as New Mexicans, we we like the fact that those people uh, come here. And they stay in our hotels, and they eat in our restaurants, and they buy things in the shops. Um, so, um, so as as one of the former executive directors once said, he said, "Our job is to entice tourists with fat wallets to come home, come here, I should say, and send them home with much thinner wallets." So, you know, that's that's what we like, you know. And, and those opportunities are not just for people like me who have degrees in science and engineering. But therefore, the people that own the shops and the restaurants and the people that work in those places, so it's going to lift lift our economy, and that's what we really are. are uh, that's why we're doing this. I mean, I'll freely admit to being a space nerd, but I also freely admit that I wouldn't be excited about this project if it were not for the opportunity that it brings to to advance our economy and help uh, help the state in general with jobs and uh, and money coming in. I too am a self-confessed space nerd, Bill. We're in good company. Um, <laughs> I like that. So I watched your TEDx talk some time ago about why you think it's better to invest in a space flight over spending that money on an expensive vehicle. 
would you still stand by that as an idea? And if so, why? Yeah, so, so the premise of that talk was that if you suddenly, and at the time, the going price for a Virgin ticket was $250,000. And so if you suddenly and unexpectedly inherited $250,000, should you buy that Lamborghini or should you buy a ticket to fly to space with Virgin? And I made the, the point that you should fly. And the people who've done this, you know, anybody who's been to space, always they always come back and they say it's a life-changing experience. You really get to appreciate the planet. And you, and you see this even in these photos. Uh, that are taken from the vehicles that we launch here from Spaceport America. When you're up high and you're looking through the atmosphere, you realize just how thin that atmosphere is. It's protecting us all. It's giving us, not only is it giving us our air to breathe, but it's also protecting us from cosmic rays and and all uh, UV from the sun and all sorts of things. So uh, kind of understanding, helping us understand our place in the cosmos, I think that's one of the things that it really does for people. And, you know, um, and it is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, I think. Most people, not you know, I, I suppose I know people that could that could scrape up the money for a ticket, even at four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But uh, but I don't know too many people, if, if any, that would just do that as as freely as they would go, say, you know, buy a um, a new car or something like that. So uh, so it, we're we're relying on that price to come down before we really get that effect. But but I would stand by that. I if if you had that opportunity to do it, definitely do it. I think so. I like that. I think so too. I mean, I think it's an exciting thing for us. And one of the things I'm always trying to tell people when I explain why space is important is how much we learn about our planet from space exploration. Yeah. Um, I had someone argue me the other week saying, "Why are we going to space, and why are we not learning about more about Earth?" And I explained about NASA's. Um, ability to track weather, um, the ability to track right. climate change over time and how that affects us. Does, does that excite you when you look at the new developments in space uh, science that are going to be happening because of the likes of Virgin, Blue Origin and space? Sure. Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the things when I go to schools and give a talk to, to uh, students, one of the things I like to point out is some of the videos that we have from some of the launches, you can clearly see white sands. And that drives home this point that you can sometimes the best way to study the Earth is from space. You can see white sands. And if you have a, a good enough telescope, you can see uh, you can see individual dunes. And so if you're if you're a geologist wanting to track the development of sand dunes, hey, that's a great way to do it, perhaps. It may be a lot better and it might even be less expensive in the long run to track the dunes by watching them from space. But so so there are all sorts of neat things happening. Uh, in in the field of optics, and, and my my physics training really is in that field. My PhD is more to do with optics than it does with space. But every every optiker, that's what we always call ourselves, will tell you that you know if you want better resolution, if you want to be able to see finer detail in a in a photo, for example, what you need to do is have a larger and larger aperture. Well, that goes only so far. So the space shuttle, the space the telescope, I should say, the Hubble Space Telescope, those stunning images that came from it, and it was done, those were all done with a, a telescope whose diameter isn't really that large, but by being above the atmosphere, that helped immensely. So one of the things that's being developed are interferometric telescopes. So many of you, uh, many of our listeners know about the, the VLA, the Very Large Array up by Socorro. 
And so what that is able to do is by using an array of, of individual uh, and, you know, those dishes, they're, they're receiving radio waves, but it's really a telescope. I mean, in, in, all, in every practical sense of the word, it's a giant telescope. It's a radio telescope. But what they're able to do is make it act as if that was one giant telescope whose diameter is the size of the full extent of that array. And now people can do the same thing with optical telescopes. Now it's, it's harder because the wavelengths are shorter and you have to have more precision control. But I see in the not too distant future having arrays of small telescopes, which together constitute a big telescope and which will allow us even better resolution of things on the ground if we want to. And undoubtedly it's going to help with astronomy. So now we know that the, uh, the, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be launched. I, I don't even know what the schedule is right now, but it's not too far in the future anymore. And it's going to revolutionize astronomy just as the Hubble Telescope did before. So it's a larger aperture, and the, the Webb Telescope is designed to work in the infrared. And that's, a, that's a, uh, the wavelengths of light that are just a little bit longer than what our eyes can see. But the infrared is very important in astronomy because it penetrates through dust better. So we're going to be able to see what's going on inside some of those nebula and things much more clearly than we can with optical telescopes, with visible light telescopes. So that's, a, that's an exciting one. And then we can't help but see what's going on here. I've had the good fortune of having seen one of the traversals of one of the uh, lines of Starlink uh, satellites, but we know that SpaceX is developing this Starlink system, which has, uh, uh, the plan is to provide essentially high quality internet service pretty much to every point on the Earth. <clears throat> and so, uh, this will, will eventually, once the constellation is, is nearing completion, it's, I think it's already operational, at least in a testing mode, but once it's fully operational, no longer is there going to be a problem if you live in, in rural uh, New Mexico, for example, and you can't get a good internet signal, you can only get dial-up or something like that even today, or if you live in, in Kenya or someplace, some distant part of the world, uh, those satellites are going to be passing over every place, and so with just a little bit of investment in equipment, everyone will be able to have that. So that, I think, has the potential to bring the world together uh, to, a way, uh, to a degree that's never been accomplished before. So I find that sort of thing very, very exciting as well. And then, you know, we're doing some other really neat testing here at Spaceport America. We have a customer that's developing high-altitude, long-endurance, unmanned airplanes and solar power. They could stay aloft for maybe a year or more at a time. And that can act as a as essentially a cell phone tower in the sky. And so the next time there's a major disaster, a hurricane or something like that, that disrupts cell service, well, if you fly one of those over, you can maybe get the system back on the air much sooner. And also it can be used to provide service in remote areas that otherwise are not getting service. So lots of lots of opportunities, I think, from these things. And, and it's just, it's, it's a very exciting time. Then I think another area that we're only really beginning to explore, I think a lot of what happens on the space station is related to space-based manufacturing. But, you know, uh, the microgravity environment in space, in orbit, uh, is very conducive to certain kinds of things. You know, without gravity interfering with it, crystal structures can be, can be grown uh, that are better than they would be if they were done on the surface. Um, so there may come a time in the future when we can have, say, pure pharmaceuticals, or we can have better silicon crystals which lead to faster computers by growing them in space. 
So I think we've only barely scratched the surface on that. And so I think um, certainly in the in the lifetime of kids that are in school today, they're going to see some things that that people like me that have been around a long time are would find a, uh, would have a hard time imagining even so. And I do think we're in a good position in New Mexico to see those things develop, uh, particularly here at Spaceport America. Thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Bill, and to tell me a bit more about how you've been involved in the Spaceport for as long as you have. You know, we are thankful for all you've done to make this happen, and we hope you stick around for a long time to come. <laughs> I'm most appreciative of those feelings, believe me. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.